Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners, and welcome to the New Books Network's special series, New Books and Celebration Studies. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm the host for this episode. Today, I am speaking with Mr. Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. In City of a Million Dreams, Jason Berry delivers a history of New Orleans at its tricentennial. Beyond its ancient streets, jazz and carnival lays a richer, more textured New Orleans than anyone imagined. Berry spotlights the tension between a culture of spectacle rooted in African burial dances and a city of laws anchored in white supremacy. Discussing how culture and law grind against each other, the narrative is a parade of New Orleanians faced with these tensions. Our guest today, Mr. Jason Berry, is an independent writer, documentary film producer, and journalist living in New Orleans. So welcome, Jason, to New Books and Celebration Studies. Thank you, Emily. Great pleasure to be with you. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, Uh, I grew up in New Orleans in the 1950s. I'm a native. Um, and I guess from my childhood forward, I was sort of entranced by the parading culture of the city, the sight of men on horseback wearing costumes, going through the streets, the maskers on floats, throwing out plastic beads and doubloons. And then years later, when I uh, became a freelance writer in the 1970s, I began to explore Black Carnival and the folkways of African Americans who had a very deep and long uh, tradition of public spectacle as well. So, you know, I tell people when you're raised in a city where the adults wear masks and dance in the streets, it plants a certain optimism for the human experiment. Uh, I went to Jesuit schools. I graduated from Georgetown in 1971. Uh, Then I worked in Mississippi for Charles Evers, um, the brother of Medgar Evers. Uh, Charles was a civil rights leader picking up the mantle of his assassinated brother when he ran for governor. And my first book in 1974, Amazing Grace, with Charles Evers in Mississippi as a chronicle of that campaign. And then I began freelancing and eventually got into um, independent uh, documentary work. Uh, I published a history of New Orleans music up from the cradle of jazz uh, in 1986. And then I had a, a long detour as an investigative journalist um, reporting on the uh clergy sex abuse cases in the Catholic Church. And my third book, uh, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, came out in 1992. And in the years since then, my career, I guess you'd say, has sort of uh, focused really on two large narratives, the city of my birth and the church in which I was raised. The city gives me hope and the church has been uh, a rather difficult topic to, to keep investigating. But In the last five years, I've shifted primarily to writing about the city and now finishing a a film, a documentary based on the book we're talking about today. Yeah, and that makes me think about to kind of your positionality that you bring to these topics. So thinking about, you know, both your work, I guess, on the church and New Orleans, what do you think your, I guess, rather personal relationship brings to the table with that work? Well, you know, I grew up on the fringes of old pedigree, I guess you'd say. And, you know, I went to debutante balls when I was a teenager. 
But at the same time, the musicians who played at those parties, uh, Benny Spellman, uh, Art and Aaron Neville, Irma Thomas, Tommy Ridgely and the Untouchables, Deacon John and the Ivories, you know, they were sending forth sounds of another city. And so here we were, white kids dancing to rhythm and blues music. And I think since the early 1970s, what we've seen in New Orleans is the emergence of an African-American culture rich in its variation. And as a journalist and writer and documentarian, I've been rather focused on that. So, you know, I try not to let my own, uh, I don't know, personal uh, aspirations or, or wishes, if you will, uh, get in the way. Uh, I try to be honest in what I see and what I chronicle, what I write about, what I film. But I do think there's a certain advantage when you're from a place and you know the sinews of the city rather well. And, um, you know, I'm at the point now where quite a number of people have followed my work and are willing uh, to give me the benefit of the doubt if I show up with a camera (laughs) or a tape recorder, as the case may be. Yes. Uh, Oh, tape recorders back in the day. Um, No, I totally get that because I grew up in Mobile and that helps me too with kind of when I'm doing that research, you know, have knowing the nuances, I guess, of a certain scene um, can help with that for sure. But like you said, maintaining that honesty too definitely helps, I think, in balancing that out. Um, and continuing too with kind of like your workflow and all of this, you know, going on to the book, what was the research process like for this project? You know, what kind of archival materials, interviews, and so on did it take to bring it all together? Well, a great deal of this research was done over the years as I wrote articles for uh weekly newspapers, magazines, popular outlets. I did some scholarly essays, but as an independent writer, as a freelance, I, you know, I've had to have editors and outlets on whom and on which I could rely. But in terms of primary sources, several, I guess. Uh, first, I did a, a great number of uh, oral history interviews with musicians. And what I learned over the years doing those interviews was that many of these artists, particularly the rhythm and blues singers and instrumentalists, have a refined sense of the city because so much of the uh, seedbed of lyrics, if you will, uh, the song lines, the names of the songs and so forth, are really... Um, almost like uh, short stories about the city, uh, you know, set to to verse as it's sung. Um, New Orleans has an enormous body of popular music, and much of it is really about different parts of the city, different traditions, things like that. You can go from Professor Longhair's, you know, classic song, Go to the Mardi Gras, uh, and, you know, at the far end of the you know, society spectrum, you've got If Ever I Cease to Love, which is the anthem of the Rex organization and the Rex Ball every year, Mardi Gras night. Um, So I built on a great many of those interviews in getting a a grasp of the areas that I wanted to focus on. Uh, In terms of the scholarly collections, um, I found a great deal at the historic New Orleans collection. Um, I had a, I was a, a consultant in jazz history there in the late nineties when they acquired the William Russell collection. Bill Russell was a pioneering uh, jazz writer and researcher. He was uh, involved for many years with Preservation Hall, and after his death, the HNOC acquired his enormous collection of materials, and so I spent. I spent quite a while, especially going through the photographs, and I have done the same thing at the William Ransom Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane. Both of these um, uh, academic collections 
have, in addition to interviews and newspaper articles and, you know, scholarly articles, uh, but they also have rather substantial collections of photographs and to some degree even, you know, film now. Uh, Jules Kahn, for example, who uh, was an avocational uh, filmmaker for many years. He was a prominent businessman. Uh, I guess Jules died, oh, I want to say in 1998, I believe. And his large collection of, uh, um, oh, Super 8, uh, 35 millimeter later videotapes and photographs uh, also now are part of the, the HNOC. In fact, we're using uh, quite a, a number of those uh, film sequences in the documentary, uh, City of a Million Dreams, which is now in post-production. So in addition to a great deal of reading of, I think, most, if not all, of the available historical literature and literature in general, I had my own base of interviews. I drew on the oral history work of others and uh, particularly the uh, the visual materials that I could find. Yeah, I love that it sounds like you've come at this work from so many different angles. And I find in particular that, you know, knowing your background as a documentarian, how that the visual media, if you will, that you bring to the table, I think is really fascinating as well. Um, and does it... Ha- in particular, what do you think those types of sources, so in other words, the, you know, either photographs or film and all that, what does that bring that you think the written word um, lacks? Well, uh, of course, you know, the adage, a picture, is, a picture is worth a thousand words. It's a little overplayed, but there's a, a good a grain of truth to that. Um The photographs, for example, of the spiritual churches, these are vernacular churches. Um, Many of the people during the founding era in the early 1900s who joined these churches had either come from rural backgrounds in the plantation belt, say 25, 50 miles out of the city, or they were, you know, former slaves or descendants of slaves. And they brought a tradition of religious worship that was um, long on ecstasy, jubilee dancing, um, a great use of percussive instruments, tambourines, hands thrumming together as they clapped in the churches. Much of what I focused on in the the book, uh, City of a Million Dreams, in the chapter on the birth of jazz, is how this stream of rural African-Americans coming into the city from 1880 to the early 1900s brought with them an intense and vibrant spirituality expressed through music. And the, the city had a long parading tradition with brass bands that um, had sort of grown out of a military tradition of marching bands, pomp, and circumstance for public events, particularly for military parades and for the funerals of notable citizens. The the Black tradition in New Orleans uh, had a long uh, ceremonial background as well. Congo Square, a public park today contained in Louis Armstrong Park, uh, is where these large ring dances Uh, congregated uh, over many years from the late 18th century until, you know, the twilight before the Civil War. Uh, Sterling Stuckey, in his great book, Slave Culture, says that wherever the ring dances were performed, they were in homage to the ancestors. There's quite a substantial literature on ring dances uh, by other uh, writers, particularly art scholars, interestingly, who've done you know, a lot of research in Africa. And you have, I I think, a a phenomenon here where the ring that was sort of the archetype uh, of African dancing um, well into the 19th century, early 19th century, 
after the Civil War, the ring opened out and people began moving behind dancers, gyrating behind marching bands in the city. And the metaphor I use in both book and film is that the funeral traditions represented the coming together of the ring and the line. And you find that most pronounced by the turn of the century when a great many African-Americans were by then playing in the brass bands, the marching bands. So, you know, I think the way in which traditions evolve uh, is a a, a telling indicator of uh, the personality uh, of a given location of a city or, you know, a region. And I tried to follow those traditions as best I could in writing this book. Yeah, and I think you articulate all that really well, you know, how those rituals come into play within the larger personality of New Orleans. You know, in your prologue, for instance, you state that the theme of the book is, quote, how the beguiling image of New Orleans grew from this culture spectacle in tension with the city of laws and official city the popular culture challenged, end quote. Can you talk more about that? How did you see, um, what do we learn from those tensions between, you know, the spectacle and larger, you know, legal stuff? Sure. Well, let me give you a contemporary example, if you will. We can put the viewfinder there and then we can slowly, slowly zoom backwards, if you will, and, and, and fill it in with the historical background. when. Mayor Mitch Landrew in 2017, with the support of the city council, removed four Confederate statues. Uh, There was a huge outcry from uh, white conservatives, uh, preservationists, who argued that this was tampering with history, among other things. The Robert E. Lee statue, of course, was the most famous. All of those statues, uh, well, there was one monument, the other three were statues, but they were all put up during the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries when the lost cause culture was um, having an enormous influence across the South. Lost cause is the idea that although the Confederate army lost, the cause of the South was noble and uh, in an almost religious sense, the men who had fought, uh, you know, were carrying a, uh, a, a, a larger message about the inherent goodness of the South. All of that is in reference to the white South. I mean, the uh, use of lynching to regain white control uh, during and after Reconstruction is one of the darkest chapters of American history. Well, if you think about the statues coming down uh, in 2017 and how they went up during a period when uh, African-Americans had been stripped of their right to vote, when the police were a, almost a paramilitary force to keep uh, black people subjugated, um, By the time the city had become majority African-American and the mayor, Landrew, realized from his due diligence, from his research, that what the city had put up uh, a century or more uh, in the past, the city could indeed take down of its own accord. And the courts upheld that, even the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is one of the most conservative uh, appellate courts in in the country today. So I got the the, sort of the idea for this theme when Alan Toussaint, the great uh, composer and rhythm and blues artist, died. Uh, His funeral happened in 2017, uh, right as this big debate, you know, was uh, igniting, you might say. And, um, you know, one of the one of the uh, trumpet players and trombone players in town, Glenn David Andrews, sent out a tweet saying, "Take down Robert E. Lee, put up a statue of Alan Toussaint, our hero." Well, that just sort of encapsulated, you know, the whole idea of the book for me. 
I mean, here was the city having changed sides, you might say. And there's somebody now saying, well, take down Robert E. Lee and put up Alan Toussaint. It, well, it, it took, took quite a while before Robert E. Lee came down, and they have still not yet uh, put up another statue, although there is a move afoot. I believe it's going to happen to rename the circle where Robert E. Lee stood, his statue, for Leah Chase, the famous uh, Creole chef. So disputes like that seemed to me much more important than writing a history of politicians and generals and who passed this law uh, and so forth. I wanted to orchestrate a narrative with characters, real people, whose lives held a mirror to the city at a given point in time. And I arranged the book that way with various spectacles, particularly funerals, as sort of a common thread uh, moving through these various chapters. Yeah. And going back to the idea of, you know, the characters that you brought together, how did you decide on which people throughout New Orleans' history to focus on? Well, if you start at the beginning, 1718, the founding of the city by Bienville, a French-Canadian aristocrat uh, who had quite a remarkable background. Uh, I mean, I had to have Bienville. I mean, you you cannot have a history of New Orleans without Bienville. No, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) Even though a lot of people are not fond of him today for various reasons, but he was an indomitable force. And the city is where it is. It is at this specific turn in the river because he clashed with these French engineers and planners and said, no, we're not going to put it north at what is today Manchac, and we're not going to put it down on the Gulf Coast at Biloxi. We're going to put it up here at this oxbow, this bend in the river where all these Indians had been having gatherings and you know, sort of, it wasn't really an Indian encampment, but various Indians came, spent time, and they were living in the outlying areas. The other thing about Bienville that fascinated me, and actually I learned this um, in doing research on Mobile. Oh, what is his name? He's a great scholar, I believe, at the University of South Alabama. His name will come to me, but um, he referenced a journal by a French uh, naval admiral from 1721. So this is three years after New Orleans is founded. Mobile by then, you know, is getting off the mountain, you know, getting its legs as well. And he said uh, that Monsieur de Bienville has tattoos of snakes all over his body. The Indians like him, but they fear him too. And then he describes them going into battle nude <laughs> with all these tattoos. And, you know, tattoos are kind of hip today. Yeah, I mean, 30 years ago, they were considered, uh, you know, something you didn't want to have. But now Vogue magazine has people with tattoos, body art. You know, it's all sort of au courant. And I was just dazzled by the idea that this guy, the founder of New Orleans, the only known picture of him, Emily, you, know, you probably know this from your research, but it is a painting. And he it was done in Paris toward the end of his life. He had a long retirement after he left Louisiana and in Paris. And he's wearing a gentleman's suit and he's his finger is sort of pointing uh, in one direction. And of course, he doesn't have his shirt off, so we can't see the tattoos. But I thought it was really amazing that this guy who was an Indian fighter, and I'm sure there are scholars who will consider him um, genocidal, perhaps. I don't know. The more I read about this, as sympathetic as I am to marginal peoples and as strong as my convictions about human rights and civil rights, um, I... The Indian cultures of the Gulf South were extremely complex. And Bienville made peace with some, and he made war with some. And I think as a historian, you have to be as dispassionate and as objective as you can, 
without imposing some sort of ideological framework on the facts that you find. I mean, the Natchez Indians, for example, engaged in horrific human sacrifice. They killed Indians, babies, uh, during funerals for their uh, emperor, for their great uh, leaders. I mean, how do you surround that fact for which we have eyewitness accounts and and say, well, the Indians, you know, were being victimized by the French. Yes, it was a collision of cultures. The, the Chickasaw uh, Indians in North Mississippi were taking slaves among the Choctaw, uh, among others. There was enslavement of Africans by Indians. So, I mean, this is an extremely complex history, and I did my best to draw a bead of objectivity on it, to be as fair-minded as possible, and also to make it come alive. Yeah, and who were some of the, you know, going forward in that history, other central people that you found fascinating as well? Well, uh, Andrew Jackson, <laughs> you, you can't have a, a history of New Orleans without Andrew Jackson, and uh, I, I, until I wrote this book, I did not realize how traumatized his childhood was. Um, you know, uh, his mother and, and older brother died when he was quite young, uh, during the war against the British. He himself was scarred, hid in the forehead, uh, while captured uh, as a very, very young prisoner by the British. And, he had a force of anger that drove him throughout his life. And, and certainly what he did at the Battle of New Orleans um, has to be reckoned with historically. And it is heroic. I mean, the fact that they managed to beat back the British and he did it with a ragtag army. I mean, it was a, an extraordinary accomplishment. Today, there are people, uh, the group Take Them Down, who've had some success in getting street names changed and certain statues removed. Uh, they want Andrew Jackson on his horse at Jackson Square taken down. Quite a number of other people uh, don't support that. along because of, And the argument for the Take Them Down group is that he not only was a slaveholder, but um, his policies toward Indians were almost genocidal. And there is certainly truth to that later as president. So, um, you know, I think the statue commemorates what he did in saving New Orleans. And you, I, I think for that reason, it has a validity. Whereas Robert E. Lee, for all we know, I think it's only been documented that he came through New Orleans once, very briefly. His statue stood atop a 60-foot ionic column, uh, you know, at the turn of uh, the streetcar line facing the north. Uh, went up in 1874, came down in, uh, uh, well, I guess it was, what, 1917? Uh, 2017, excuse me. So they're very different cases. And... Symbols have powerful meaning, but I think we have to approach them with all the historical nuance uh, that we can bring to bear. Yeah, and I was going to also tell you, being a musicologist, I appreciated, you know, also the inclusion of, you know, some of the, you know, significant musicians throughout the history, too. Like, for instance, your discussions about Michael White at the end. Um, phenomenal player. I actually heard him live once. Um a couple of years ago, and it was great. Well, you know, I made a calculated decision on the last third of the book. And again, if I may, uh, having read all of the major histories of New Orleans, I, I wanted a book that captured the personality, the essence of the city, why it is a place that, that attracts people, what makes it otherworldly. And... You know, I didn't want to write a, a long chapter of, about segregation, another long chapter about civil rights, another long chapter about the building of the Superdome and what happened in the 70s. Certainly, there are high points of everything I just mentioned in these chapters. But to me, the story of the music is so paramount. Let me give you one quick, quick 
spot-lit moment, if I may. I have sure a whole chapter on Sister Gertrude Morgan, who is a now famous uh, folk artist. She died uh, in 1980. Um, Sister Gertrude came from Alabama during the Depression, believed herself to be a bride of Christ, literally. She was a mystic. You see it in her writings and in her paintings. Uh, she was obsessed with the book of Revelation, the war between good and evil, and the presence of Christ as a victorious figure. One of her famous paintings is Jesus is My Airplane. Well, she was painting and was represented as an artist by Larry Borenstein, who was a founder of Preservation Hall. She was there in the early 1960s when that jazz venue was revitalizing the career of traditional musicians, jazz men, who, going back through the 50s and 40s, had really been struggling uh, to get by. And at the same time, you had um, freedom riders coming through the city. Um, David Brinkley of NBC News did a famous report from Preservation Hall with Alan Jaffe, uh, the tuba player who eventually became the owner of the hall. Alan was Jewish. So here you have a white man playing in a black band. And this just, you know, was like uh, setting off cherry bombs at City Hall. What are they going to do on national TV? They're breaking the law. So it's another a profound example of the culture pushing against the law of white supremacy. And eventually they realized that they could not uh, maintain laws of segregation and hope to have a tourist economy. Now that may sound kind of banal today, but um, it, it was a major consideration at the time. So the people surrounding Preservation Hall in its infancy, the musicians and of course, Sister Gertrude, were players in that drama. And yet in all of the histories of the civil rights era that touch upon or deal with New Orleans, I had seen very little that reckoned with the cultural dynamics of this time and, and place. Um, in like measure, uh, Danny Barker, who was a, a, a writer, a raconteur, uh, a guitarist and a composer, uh, had a long, uh, illustrious history and was really the elder statesman of the music for probably 20 years. Uh, I knew him well. I interviewed him several times. And when he died in 1994, his funeral was one of the most beautiful and dramatic that I uh, had ever seen. So I tried through these various personalities to capture a to capture the line of politics and the, and the line of social change as they each became intertwined with the larger historical fabric of the city as we know it. Yeah, I think it definitely helped thinking about kind of other history books, you know, like you said, that it doesn't normally have like a focal point like that, like a tangible person to whom you can relate in some way. And I think that was a really interesting and creative way to cover 300 years <laughs> of, you know, something like that. I definitely think that shined through um, and, like I said, was really helpful, actually, for going through so much chronology, so much information. And yet you have this person, like you said, character to help kind of make it more relatable as well. Um Thank you. If I may, and I don't mean to interrupt the questioner, but I just wanted to add one small thing, if you don't mind. Um, sure thing. You know, the stories that people carry become part of the um, consciousness of a given place and a, and a given time. And one of the things that Danny Barker wrote absolutely riveted me. He did a piece in 1965 called Buddy Bolden and the Last Days of Storyville. Well, if you know anything about the jazz, about jazz history, Buddy Bolden, the, the first 
great cornet player, forerunner of the trumpet. He was the the revolutionary breakthrough figure in you know in giving the idiom its its basic sound. He had a complete breakdown, and his family had him committed to a state sanitarium in uh, 1908. Storyville. The red light district, where many musicians played, was closed on order of the federal government um, in 1917. So the title of Danny's story, and, and Danny Barker uh, was born in, in uh, let's see, 80, 85, 1909. So he's a kid during Storyville. Never said that he went in there as a child, but he heard the lore. He he got the oral history of it. So he's got this scene. It's an amazing scene in what is fundamentally a short story. It was published in Evergreen Review in 1965. And so this guy is watching Bolden have this collapse. And the band leader, Henry Red, uh, Henry Allen Sr., who was a famous band leader over in Algiers, says in the story, Madam, call the ambulance. This is Buddy Bolden. And so the narrator then describes looking in the window of Bolden's house, and he's watching Bolden play a slow blues and then an up-tempo gospel song, and he's switching between blues and gospel. And... And the reason that they threw him out of the band and the reason they called the ambulance because was because at a funeral, at the very time they were putting the coffin down into the soil, he breaks out into this up-tempo uh, parading anthem, violating the decorum of a sacred moment when you should be playing dirges or gentle, slow spiritual songs. And so as the narrator later looks at him in his house, realizing that this man has sort of gone crazy, he says he's playing religious music and he's playing the burning blues and he's doing it at the same time, moving from one and then to the other. Well, metaphorically or symbolically, this is the birth of jazz, the coming together of the spiritual music and the rocking, raggedy, up-tempo music, the coming together of the ring and the line. And Barker in 1965 captured that. And this is a guy with an eighth grade education, never went to high school, never went to college, but he traveled far and wide as a musician. And he was a natural storyteller and a self-taught man who read and read and read. So I zeroed in on that story in the chapter about him to show how he had defined the, if you will, the birth of jazz. And there's something else worth saying. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was very little written about the influence of church music on the traditional jazz idiom. Now it's rather widely accepted that the churches were... uh, had a major role in the incubation of the idiom we now call New Orleans jazz, but he was way ahead of it. And so I I felt that in quoting that and doing it in the context of a chapter that profiles him, I was both capturing the history and, I believe, his role as, as one of the narrators, as one of the storytellers, as a carrier of the culture. Yeah, it brings a lot together about how complex jazz and a lot of these, you know, different traditions in New Orleans function, um, if you will. And I wanted to ask you too, you got me thinking about, you know, we were talking about music and all of that and in those burial rituals that have, you know, as you were talking about earlier in the interview, transformed across time, what other components contribute to that spectacle of burial rituals? So you've got the sound, you're talking about how you know, they're sort of at some points a little bit like what's kind of the emotional state of these rituals? You know, what else goes into these rituals throughout their history? That's a that's a very good question. I, it, you know, it's almost like a Greek tragedy in a way. 
if you think about, you know, the classical dramas of, uh, you know, Sophocles uh, and, and the other Greek uh, dramatists, um, there is a chorus that invariably warns about the cosmos and 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 the stability and how it should not be broken. It's the, the chorus's job is to warn against, you know, the breaking of rules and tradition. Well, if you begin with a wake in an African American church, the chorus is absolutely fundamental to any service. And when the pastor gives a eulogy, often in this, you know, cascading rhetoric, the, the members of the um, congregation sitting in the pews function as a chorus as well. They're singing back, almost saying, yes, Lord, say it's true, that's true. And so the ritual begins really with a praise song, um, which is a, an ancient African tradition, uh, to the person who has died. And then the band, the brass band, leads the, um, the family, uh, the pallbearers, the pastor or priest, as the case may be, walking out of the church. And it's a, a hallowed, very solemn spectacle to see. The musicians are playing the dirges, the sad songs, often uh, sorrowful hymns. Uh, just a closer walk with thee. Um, and in fact, the saints, which people now think of in the up-tempo parade uh, dynamic of uh, Louis Armstrong's famous song, uh, When the Saints Go Marching In, in 1938. Prior to that, the saints was a very slow, melodious, um, slow tempo, I should say, melody, um, when the saints, when the saints, when the saints go marching in, and people are parading, you know, they're, they're, they're emoting sorrow. Well, the band now, the brass band is playing that to the solemn staccato of the snare drum and the deep thumping of the bass drum. This is a community releasing its sorrow through music. They bring the, uh, the band, leads the cortege out of the church. Finally, the pallbearers put, lift the um, coffin, and now surrounded by hundreds of people outside the church watching as the, as the coffin goes in. And then they close, you know, the back of the, of the limousine, of the hearse, and the band uh, moves out playing. Oftentimes they'll continue playing a dirge for uh, maybe two or three songs, or they may just start straight into the uh, high-kicking uh, second-line music, so named for the street dancers with their spontaneous choreographies who follow behind uh, the band and follow behind the uh, the procession of the of the family, uh, you know, in in the limousines, and the street dancers are, in a sense, giving the soul a send off, um, cutting him loose is the phrase from earthly ties onto a better place. So it's you know it's almost like a three part drama, and each part can can be seen or experienced or treated in, in whatever fashion, be it the written word or, or, you know, in a film, in a documentary, uh, as a kind of, you know, as a separate sequence. Yeah. And speaking of documentary, um, I wanted to ask you too about the filmic city of a million dreams. So how has that been going? Has it been, what has it been like to capture some of those, you know, rituals that you were just talking about in that medium? Well, I'm pleased to say the film is almost done. Uh, it's only taken about half my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dedication. Yeah, dedication. Indeed. I'm glad you're laughing too. Uh, I started filming jazz funerals back in the late 90s. I, I got some grant support from the Ford Foundation. And then Hurricane Katrina just upended everything. And um, I filmed Dr. Michael White, who is the protagonist of the film, 
going through his house after the flood, which is a, a really uh, a, 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 a very emotionally draining experience for everyone involved that day. It is quite a sequence in the film. Um, and then gradually, uh, I, I, I started filming other funerals after the after the flood, after the hurricane, and because of the other work I was doing, I mentioned earlier, I did a couple of books on the Vatican, and I was going back and forth to Rome. Oh, for several years, and then finally, in 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 2015, I managed to just kind of reorient my my work, and I began raising money to finish this film. And as it's taken about five and a half years, or close to six now, I guess. But we are in post production. Um, we have a website, cityofamilliondreams.com. We're entering in uh, film festivals for the uh, summer and fall, and I'm hoping that we will have a premiere in New Orleans after the pandemic. I, I hope by maybe September, October, crowds will be coming back. Um, uh, the New Orleans Film Festival is next November. I do hope they will uh, give us a welcome. I every reason to believe they will. You know, the pandemic has has just thrown a wrench into everybody's lives. And I don't mean to in any way imply that it's been harder for me than people who have lost loved ones or, or have been thrown out of work. Uh, I mean, uh, it's been a time of, of, of tremendous difficulty for everybody. And we were delayed in finishing, but we're almost done. Yeah. And you actually were bringing up something I've, I've been thinking about too, um, as I was reading the book, you know, if you could add a chapter or if there's a way to kind of capture that personality of New Orleans that you were talking about in the present moment, I mean, how would you describe what's been going on in 2020 and continuing in 2021? You know, are these rituals continuing? You know, Carnival 2021, for instance, to my understanding, has pretty much been canceled. So, you know, what do you see happening in this present moment? Well... I guess I'd put it this way, Emily, the, the New Orleans, like most cities, uh, is not in any way at, at full speed. Many of the restaurants are not uh, open or barely open. Uh, the music clubs are not, you know, having, um, they're not, the musicians are not playing in clubs. Um, you know, there, there are different events going on, people playing on front porches and streaming on Facebook, things like that, all to the good. But it's been a long, painful hibernation um, for many people in the cultural community here. I mean, there are a number of restaurants that have closed. Um, uh, I, I don't know of any music clubs that, and I'm not fallible on this, but I don't know of any offhand that have actually said we are not coming back, but I mean, they're all in a free fall. I mean, how do you pay your taxes to the city when you haven't had, you know, sales, you haven't had revenue, how do, and when do, do, do clubs reopen? I mean, it, it's been a real strain uh, for everybody. There have been a couple of funerals where people came out despite the protocols and insisted on you know, having a band, having a send off, but they've been very, very few. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I take the long view about New Orleans. This is a city that uh, across the, the decades, over three centuries now, has been slammed by storms, by floods, yellow fever epidemics, um, you know, racial violence, uh, particularly whites. Uh, uh, they use the term race riots, but they're really, they, you know, they, they 1900 when Robert Charles, uh, the black revolutionary was killed. I mean, there were uh, people shot in the streets. Uh, so, you know, the city has a hard history that many people, <laughs> you know, who want to market the cultural economy don't want others to think about. And I'm not saying we have to think about all the you know, the blood and suffering of the past. But, you know, as a city, 
this is a resilient place and it will come back. I have no doubt of it. Yeah. I'm like you said, hopefully with your film coming out eventually and we'll see what happens with carnival in 2022, you know, we'll just have to see how things play out for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, all this information, you know, about your experience and the wealth of knowledge that, I mean, you've clearly learned in chronicling the 300 year history. Uh, To wrap up, let me ask you this, what other projects do you have underway? Well, I'm working on a memoir, uh, which I've been working on off and on for quite a while. Uh, And I am, uh, what I'm really focused on now is trying to get this film out into the world to get as many colleges and museums and venues that will welcome a film like this and a band to travel with it, Dr. Michael White's band. Uh, we don't know exactly when an itinerary can be put together, but uh, I really want to take the story of the city and the story of the funerals and try to get it before as as large an audience as I can. I, I think I'm sure we'll have a, we'll get a deal, you know, with one of the <clears throat> streaming outlets or you know perhaps a network. It's a little far in advance to make that prediction, but irrespective of that, uh, I, I think this is a book and a film that um, that young people would really embrace. Uh, particularly undergraduates, uh, not to take anything away from people doing graduate work and musicologists and wish you the best in Mobile. But, you know, I want to I want to take this story out as far as we can uh, to all the available venues that will welcome us. Absolutely. That sounds like a really exciting, you know, project. And I'm really looking forward to watching it at some point. Um, and I know you've sounds like you're working hard and edit and I'm excited to see what the final product ends up being and, you know, how it complements the book and whatnot. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for joining us on New Books and Celebration Studies. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, we have to thank you as well, of course, for checking out this interview with Jason Berry, author of City of a Million Dreams, A History of New Orleans at Year 300, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. This is Emily Allen, and please join us next time on New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series from the New Books Network.